story is told of a recent meeting of the Pope and his cardinals to discuss a proposal from the Prime Minister of Israel. Your Holiness, said one of the cardinals, the Prime Minister of Israel wants to challenge you to a game of golf to show the friendship and ecumenical spirit shared by the Jewish and the Catholic faiths. The Pope thought it was a good idea, but he had never held a golf club in his hands. He asked around if any of the cardinals have and said, we have not either. Is there any cardinal who can represent me against the leader of Israel? Well, none that can play very well was the answer. But there is a man named Jack Nicholas. He's an American golfer who is a devout Catholic. We can offer to make him a cardinal, then ask him to play the Israeli prime minister <laughs> as your personal representative. In addition to showing our spirit of cooperation, we will also win the match. Everyone agreed, thought it was a great idea. The call was made, and of course, Nicholas was honored, and he agreed to play on behalf of the Vatican. The day after the match, Nicholas reported to the Vatican to inform the Pope of the result. He said, Your Holiness, I have some good news and some bad news. Well, tell me the good news first, Cardinal Nicholas, said the Pope. <laughs> said, Well, Your Holiness, I don't like to brag, but even though I've played some pretty terrific rounds of golf in my lifetime, this was the best I have played so far. I must have been inspired from above. My drives were long and true. My irons were accurate and purposeful. And my putting was perfect. With all due respect, my play was truly miraculous. The Pope said, well, there's bad news. Nicholas sighed. Well, I lost by three strokes to Rabbi Tiger Woods. Well, you know, things aren't all, always as they may appear, and that is certainly true of an event we'll examine today in our own ongoing study of the Gospel of Luke. Turn with me in your Bible to Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. If you're here and you're in need of a Bible, we've got some that are compliments to you. If you've got a need for a Bible, just raise your hand, we'll get one to you. Um, but in Luke chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 39 through 52 where we read these words. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and grace. And the grace of God was upon him. And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he had became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning, after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And they did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and continued in subjection to them. And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature 
and in favor with God and men. As I read through this passage and was studying verse 49, if you notice, that became the focal point of my study. And Jesus, in Jesus' answer to his mother and Joseph, we find that Jesus is, at the age of 12, uh, very much aware of his unique relationship to God the Father and his own purpose in being here on earth. The King James and the New King James renders his answer as this. Did you not know I had to be about my father's business? The New American Standard, the NIV, said, Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Which can also be translated, Did you not know that I had to be in the things of my father? Today we might say something like, Don't you understand that I'm here to take care of my father's business? You know, in his answer, Jesus clearly reveals that he had come to earth to do the will of the Father to take care of business. He had come here to take care of business. You know, when I thought about that, did you not know that I'm here to do the business of my Father? The question is immediately raised at that point is, what exactly is God's business? You know, what is the business of God? You know, what business is he in? And if you go through scriptural you'll notice very clearly in the gospel of luke for example if you'll turn ahead to luke chapter 19 jesus had a very clear understanding and it's revealed at this point in his life at the age of 12 and as we see scriptural continually indicate to us that jesus had a very clear understanding that the business of god is to redeem mankind or to buy back man which has been lost to sin because of the sin of Adam. And in Luke 19.10, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The business of God is to save a lost and fallen mankind. The business of God is to save you and to save me from the consequences of sin. The business of God is to redeem us. The word redeem means to buy back, literally to buy back one who has been lost into slavery. In this case, you and I have been all lost into the slavery of sin. We're children of the devil and not children of God. We're dead to God. We're alive to sin. As we come into the world, we're born in iniquity. We're conceived in iniquity, Psalm 139 tells us. And the business of God is to buy us back and bring us back into his family. Jesus understood the business of God to be that. And in fact, in the Gospel of John, if you'll turn ahead, you'll notice many references that refer to the fact that that Jesus understood that his father's business was the business of redeeming mankind. The business of God is the salvation business, and there is no other business like that. In John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus, in answering a question, came to them and said, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. If you'll turn ahead to chapter 5, verse 30, we see the same thing. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In verse 36, But the witness which I have is greater than that of John, speaking of John the Baptist, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. In chapter 6, verses 38 through 40, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but I raise it up. On the last day. 
For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. In chapter 8, verse 29, And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Chapter 12, verses 49 and 50. For I did not speak of my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. And the last reference we'll look to is in, in John chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting his eyes up to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee even as thou gavest him authority over all mankind, that to all whom thou hast given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. I glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. The business of God and his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is to buy back and redeem mankind, you and me, to offer his life as a ransom for many. He understood his mission was to come and to seek and to save that which was lost. John 3.16, a very popular and favored verse, is that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. So when you think about the business of God, God is in the business of redemption. God is in the salvation business. And the Lord Jesus Christ was sent to accomplish the work of God. And this is the work of God. That you believe upon Him whom He, God, has sent. That you believe the Word of God when He tells us that we are guilty as charged of sin and that there is no hope in and of ourselves. There is nothing that you and I can do. It is a gift from God. By grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It is a gift from God. God has given us the gift of His Son and His death upon the cross in your place and mine. He raised him up three days later from the dead. And just as he has been risen to eternal life, so you and I who trust in him will be raised to life everlasting. Eternal life takes place the moment you trust in Christ and is realized in its final fruition when we stand before the Lord one day. But Jesus said, I came that you can have abundant life today, now, knowing God and the assurance of your salvation. And these things I've written to you that you may know that you're children of God. If you have the Son, you have life. If you do not have the Son of God, you do not have life. And these things I have told you so that you can know with confidence that you have eternal life. See, our eternal life rests upon the work of Christ on the cross and the power of his resurrection and not based on anything that you and I do. That's why Jesus said, all that the Father has given me, I will not lose one. Why? Because you and I can't do anything to violate what God has done for us. As we look at this and recognize the business of God is now our business. And this is where it becomes even more personal than have you come to faith and trust in the word of God and in the work of Christ. If you have, you are now a child of God who believes in his name. And now it's important to recognize that the business of God becomes our business. And Jesus was very clear about that, where he said that, you know, as the Father has sent me into the world, so the Son now sends you. 
John 17, verse 18, and John 20, verse 21. Just as God the Father has sent Jesus into the world to do the business of God, so now you and I who have come to faith and trust in God are sent into the world to continue the business that Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. We have been entrusted with the message that the world needs to hear, that they are condemned before God, but their only hope is in Jesus Christ and Him crucified and the power of His resurrection. You know, it's a family business. I can't help but notice as I read through the paper how many companies like to advertise that they're a family-owned and operated business. It kind of gives you kind of a warm and fuzzy feeling. You know, if you've ever seen it, look at it sometime because you'll see advertising and you'll see, you know, the company owners and their wives and their children and their grandchildren and their kids. And you look at this whole family and you go, you know what? They look like you can trust them. You know, although you know none of them have anything actually to do with the business other than maybe, you know, to, you know, need some money that might be generated from the business itself. But, you know, they're indirectly involved. But when you see that picture and you see that everybody, look, they all look trustworthy. You know, and there's something about that. I get hooked on that, too. And it's like, and I'm thinking, man, you know what? Wouldn't it be, I mean, say, take a snapshot. Maybe later today when you're all a little bit more awake. But we'll take a snapshot. <laughs> And it's kind of like, you know, we put a big ad in the paper sometime. We're here to do our father's business. Which is to share the gospel with with the world. I mean, if we are to reach the world with the word of God, we need to recognize that that is our family business. It's a family business. Family owned and operated. Since the beginning of eternity. And that's truth in advertising. <laughs> you know, think about that. Family-owned and operated. I, I like, I've seen the bumper sticker, I'm sure you have, where the bumper sticker says, and you know, and, I, and here's how stupid I am sometimes. You know, I saw it out on a job site, and it said, um, my, my boss is a Jewish carpenter. And I'm thinking, well, who, wonder who the framer is on this job. <laughs> I, I, sometimes I'm not too quick. It's like, like Mark told a joke, a story about being in a hotel, and it took me like a whole day and a half to get it. I was like, oh, what, what does that mean? You know, please leave for the sake of the convenience of others. I'm like, what is he talking about? I didn't get it. And see, some of you didn't get it either. And uh, some of you can't even remember that. That's scary. That's why we have the notebooks. But, um, but uh, you know, I saw that and I thought, man, you know what, though? But my boss is a Jewish carpenter. But you know what? See, the reality of it is, is that, you know, our boss is a Jewish carpenter at one time. It's a great conversation piece. But see, Jesus isn't in the carpentry business. He's not in the framing business. He's not in the woodworking business. He's in the life transforming business. He's in the eternal life business. He's in the born-again business. He's in the, you know, transformation of a dead person to God to an alive person to God business. Our hope is in Him. It's a great conversation, an entree into a conversation, but at the end of the day, the business of God is saving men from the consequence of sin. And so as we look at this from the passage that we're studying we're going to learn that Jesus, from Jesus what it takes to be successful in the family business, a business like no other on the face of the earth. And because it is like no other, it is also operated like no other. It's an important thing that we understand. First, we begin and look and learn that commitment to the Father's business 
the family business begins and is nurtured in our spiritual development. If you'll notice going back to Luke chapter 2, you'll notice that Jesus' commitment to his mission was rooted in his spiritual development. It was rooted in his spiritual development. Notice in verse 39 and 40, again, it says, and when they had performed everything, and you know, I like that. You know, I jumped out, I circled it, underlined it, it says, and when they, speaking of Joseph and Mary, had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. Now, I read the word everything, I think, you know what, they, they held back nowhere. They skimped in no area, their relationship with God. Everything that God required of them, they did. They didn't have that mentality of, you know what, well, you know what, six out of seven, eight out of ten, you know, I'm doing good, I'm doing better than I used to do. You know what, they were obedient. If you remember and recall from our last message, you know, a life that is pleasing to God is one who is obedient to the commandments of God. They weren't obedient to a certain degree. They were obedient in every area of their relationship with God. Can you make the same claim today? Can you make the same claim today? Or is it kind of like, well, I'm obedient in these areas, but I got a couple areas over here I struggle with. And in those areas, you know, hey, three steps forward, two steps back. You know, hey, I'm making progress. No, you know what? We need to be totally 100% to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength to continue to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship, and not to be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind, that we know what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Can you honestly say with a clear conscience before God, there's no area of your life that you don't need to confess your sin to repent and get right with God? Today is the day to do it. It is never too late to start doing what is right before God. Examine yourself. Have the Lord examine you. I'll guarantee you, get a piece of paper out and a pen and say, Lord, is there anything in my life that's not pleasing to you? And then start writing down. And then as you write it down, then you confess it, rip it up, throw it away, and repent, turn from those actions, and begin to do that which is right before God. Romans 6 says, stop presenting yourselves or your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself as instruments of righteousness. Stop doing what's wrong, start doing what is right. And they did everything according to the law of God. They were people who were 100% sold out and obedient to the laws of God. Afterwards, they returned to Galilee, to their own city of Nazareth, and the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and grace, and the grace of God was upon him. During the days and years following his circumcision and presentation in the temple, God gives us a brief glimpse of what life was like for Jesus as a child growing up in Nazareth. We know from Scripture that he worked with Joseph in the carpenter shop. What's fascinating to me is that he was being trained for his ministry while working in the construction industry. <laughs> That's true. I laugh like that now. I praise God for that. And I'll tell you what, and the reason I praise God for that, not just because I spent a number of years in the construction industry, but because I know that whatever business you're in here this side of eternity, that God will use it to prepare you for his business of reaching people with the word of God. Our life is a light. Our life is salt. Our life where he has us today should attract people to the forgiveness that's found in Christ at the cross and the power of his resurrection. 
as we're transformed and become new creatures and old things pass away and all things become new, there should be something different about the way you conduct yourself in the business that God has you so that you can do the business of God in that environment. Or to stand out. Or to be different. And we don't have to go out of our way to be different. All we need to do is be obedient to God and we'll be different. And then when people see our good works, what do we do? We deflect and defer and give all the glory to our Father who is in heaven. It's all because of Him and not because of me. Why are you so different? Why don't you get frustrated? Why don't you drop bombs, you know, from your mouth like so many people do? Why don't you lie? Why don't you cheat? Why don't you steal? Why, 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 I mean, what is it about you? I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the, power, you know, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by my faith in the Son of God who, is, who has loved me and given himself up for me. How simple and easy is that answer to give to those who would ask the question? But so many times as that question is asked, how do we answer it? What? Oh, wait, wait, you old, old porky pig. I mean, what is that? You know, we need to be understanding that as people ask and are attracted to the life that we live because of Christ who lives within us, we've got to have the, 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 the courage, the spirit of courage of power and might and love and a sound mind to be able to articulate to others what Christ has meant to us and has done for us in our life and why we live the way that we live now. We know that he worked in the carpenter business. We also know from Scripture that Joseph and Mary had other children during those years. Matthew 13, verses 55 through 56, and John 7, verses 1 through 10 indicate that. Also in Matthew 1, we know that we're told that, and it was for until Matthew 1.25, that she remained a virgin until she gave birth to Christ. And it indicates that the couple had, quote, normal marital relationships after the birth of Jesus. We also know, despite rumors to the contrary, that Jesus did no miracles during his youth because the turning of water into wine at Cana was the beginning of such signs. The Bible clearly indicates that. So the question then is this, what was going on in the life of Jesus in those first 12 years? And we're given the answer. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom and grace of God was upon him. Number one, we learn that he relied upon God's strength. In verse 40, as he continued to grow, he continued to grow in the strength of the Lord. The same was true if you go back to Luke chapter 1. Notice in verse 80, the same thing is said of John the Baptist. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. In a similar manner, we're going to learn that Jesus Christ continued to grow as a child, a unique child, the very child of God. And as we'll see, that he understood his relationship with the Father and, and that relationship was explained to us all throughout the Gospels. But if you and I are to be successful in God's business of reaching the world with the Word, we must learn to rely upon God's strength and not our own. In Romans 1.16, it says, For I am not ashamed of the Gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and to the Greek also, all, all to those who believe. One of the things that troubles me today about the church is the movement to, quote, franchise it, is what I like to call it. 
to franchise it like other businesses. You know, there's models that are established. And there's also, you know, models of how to fill a church, how to raise funds, uh, how to, uh, you know, what the latest fad is or the movement is in a church as far as music and dramas and videos and presentations of such. You know, and it's unfortunate that all too many churches follow the marketing models of the world rather than the ministry model of the Word of God. And it's important that we recognize and understand that Jesus Christ himself relied upon the strength of God. He continued to grow in God's strength. He became strong in the Lord. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, we see a similar thought as it's explained to us as to where the power comes for us to be, quote, successful in God's business. In Ephesians chapter 3, we'll pick it up at verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and all God's people said, Amen. The reality of it is, is that if we are to be successful in the business of God, that we must rely upon the Spirit of God as our strength. It is not by might nor by power, but my, my Spirit says the Lord of God, the Lord of hosts. It is not by my strength. It is not by my power. It is not by your strength. It is not by your power. It is not by our persuasiveness of speech. The apostle Paul said, I didn't come to you with persuasiveness of speech, but I came to you in the power of God as I preach Christ and him crucified. The business of God is like no other business. Man can figure out ways to fill seats, but only God can transform lives. Only God can cause one to be born again. Only God, because it is not by the will of men, but by the will of God, can take a person who is dead to God and raise them alive to God through faith in Christ. That is something that you and I cannot do. We've been entrusted with the word of God to share. It's by faith. It's, it's by uh, uh, the, the word of God as it is shared. Equivalence to faith equals faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The weapon that God has given us, the sword of the spirit, is the word of God. You and I share the word of God with men and women who are dead to God. And God uses his word coupled with the Holy Spirit and causes one who trusts in Christ to be born again. We can take absolutely no credit for it whatsoever, but God calls us and requires that we're obedient to share that message with others. When people are born again, it is all because of God and nothing to do with any of us. It is the power of God. It troubles me, it concerns me when I see the church going to marketing models of the world and recognizing it. You know what? We can fill buildings. We can come up with fundraising techniques. We can do all of those things. And the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God because God does things His way and we must rely upon the Spirit of God. Because that is the only true growth that will ever take place. That is the only way one can be born again. 
by the Spirit of God, not by some persuasiveness of speech on my part or your part or anybody else's part. The reality of it is a scene every week where the gospel is preached with power by the Word of God and you've got people that you've invited, that I've invited, that I've shared with for a number of years and they don't get it. And it's not because you haven't shared the truth with them. It's because they are blind, having ears they cannot hear, having eyes they cannot see. And the only way that Christ can be revealed to man is when God himself reveals the identity of Jesus Christ to an unregenerate man or woman so that they can trust in him as Savior. It's all God and none of us. Jesus Christ relied upon the strength of God as he grew. Go back to Luke chapter 2. And we see and we're told very clearly that God's business is different than any other business. And we've got to be careful not to follow the marketing models of the world, but rather the ministry model of the word. Is God's strength, his giftedness to us to do his work. It is the Holy Spirit, one of power and love and discipline or sound mind and our willingness to serve that God uses to draw men and women to the cross of Jesus Christ. Number two, we notice that he also reacted with God's wisdom to people and the circumstances and events of life. He continued to grow, we're told. He grew not only in the, in the strength of the Lord, but we notice also that he grew in wisdom. The word that is used here has to do and refers to the fact that as we continue to increase with wisdom, it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 6, verse 3, of seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, and of wisdom. That's the same word that we see. In Ephesians chapter 5, we see again another reference to what it means to be filled with the wisdom of God. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to man. In Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 15 through 17, God refers to the wisdom. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. What he's saying, be careful how you live your life, not as unwise men who think there's a way that seems right, but the end is destruction. He says, but be careful to walk according to wise men, which is the wisdom that God gives to see those things that man cannot see who are blind to the things of God. You and I, through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, we can see dangers that are out there that those who are blind cannot see. Have you ever been? I mean, if you, I'm, I'm, sure, I'm certain that you have seen it. You've seen it in your own families. You've seen it in people that you work with. You go, how stupid can people be to make the choices that they make? Don't they recognize that sin will take you further than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you were ever willing to pay? Can't they see how stupid that is? And the answer is, No, they can't. Why? Because they have eyes and they can't see. They have ears they cannot hear. They're blind to the things that you and I are privileged to know and to understand. We have insight as to the mind of God because the Spirit of God indwells those of us who have trusted in Christ. And we've got the mind of God that we can see things that the rest of the world doesn't see. and And they live out the consequences of it. You know, if you think about it, God's wisdom is not worldly wisdom. In fact, often the wisdom of God appears foolishness to men. The cross appears foolishness to men. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, but it's foolishness to Gentiles. It's like, wait a minute, you've had people say, let me get this straight. 
Jesus Christ died on the cross. If we believe that he died for me, if I believe that, then I'll find forgiveness with God. He rose again from the dead, and that's all I need to do is believe he died for me and trust that he rose from the dead, and I shall be saved. That's what you're saying. Absolutely, that's what the Word of God says. That doesn't make any sense. How can one person die for another person, and somehow or another that would free me up from the consequence of sin? I don't understand that. Well, you know why? Because you don't understand God. Because that's God's plan. That's what he chose to do. That's his plan to redeem man. It seems foolishness to people. So does sexual purity seem foolishness to the world. In marriage or out of marriage seems foolish to the world. So does honesty seem foolish. When if we tell the truth, there'll be consequences. Therefore, I think I can lie and get away with it. It seems foolish. But not to God. Not letting unwholesome words proceed from your mouth, but only that which builds up or edifies. Not seeking vengeance or retribution for harms that are done to you. Not keeping into account a wrong that's been suffered. You know, not being, you know, being patient. That's foolish. You know, these people drive me crazy. It's all foolishness to the world. A system that's based on God's grace and faith and not based on works. You know, I want to work my way to heaven. Do you? No, you don't. I don't either. It's like if you do, that'd be the only place you really want to work. Because it seems foolish to men to work hard instead of hardly work. I talk to people all the time. It's like, this is great. This is the best job I ever had. I hardly have to work. And that's more money I've ever made. This is great. That's the world we live in. God says, work hard. And the world says, you know what? Hardly work. See how much you can get away with. How much money you can make for doing the least amount of work. That's a good gig. See, God's wisdom is foolishness to man. But Jesus Christ reacted with God's wisdom to people in the circumstances and events of life. And the third thing that we're told back to Luke chapter 2, if we look at that, he continued to grow and become strong, strong in the Lord, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. The grace of God, for in my weakness, your strength is perfected. For when I am weak... God, you are strong. When I can't do this on my own, and i got to rely totally upon you, is when I really get to see the power of God worked out in my life. Isn't that true? In every one of us, when it's way bigger than us, and it's just an illusion because I don't know if you know this, but everything's way bigger than us. It just is. Now, for those who don't think it's way bigger than us, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he'll make sure there's something that comes up in your life that makes you focus on him because it'll be way bigger than you. And he'll keep you close. Our Lord's commitment to his father's business was rooted in the spiritual and his spiritual development. What was Jesus doing the first 12 years of his life? He was relying upon God's strength. He was reacting with godly wisdom. And he was responding to God's grace. One question before moving on, and that is this. Can the same be said of you? Do you rely upon God's strength or your own power? Do you react to others and circumstances and events of life with God's wisdom instead of your own? And are you responding to God's grace? For when I am weak, he is strong. Praise God for that. 
The second thing that's pointed out as it relates to the business of God, and that is in the life of Jesus Christ, we see it was revealed in his unusual discussions that took place in the temple. In verse 41, we read these words. And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he became 12, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey. And they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. And it came about that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? To better understand this passage or some background is in order, Luke gives us only one story from our Lord's youthful years. Joseph and Mary, as you'll notice, were devout Jews. And they they observed Passover in Jerusalem every year. In fact, three times a year, Jewish men were required to go to Jerusalem to worship, but not all of them could because if you couldn't afford it, then they would go one time of year, and they usually chose the Feast of Passover. And they tried to take their family with them, for it was the most important of all the Jewish calendar. And so as we look at this, this is the scene that's taking place, and Jesus' presence as a 12-year-old was significant because the next year at the age of 13, he would officially become, quote, a son of the commandment a full member of the synagogue. And it's similar to the modern custom of bar mitzvah. So 12-year-old Jesus was brimming with excitement and energy as he approached Jerusalem with his family. And the scene that was there is incredible, and history records what he would have seen when he walked in there. For seven days, over 200,000 people were jammed and packed in the wall city. There was a full contingent of priests on duty in the temple, 24 divisions instead of a customary one who attended the temple. At 3 o'clock, the sacrifice began, which was exactly the same time Jesus would years later yield his spirit on the cross. We can well surmise that, you know, Joseph and his relatives in preparation for Jesus' manhood took him into the temple with them so he could observe the sacrifice that was taking place. If so, as the gates of the temple door would close behind the group of worshipers, he would hear a ram's horn that would blow and sound and saw Joseph in concert with hundreds of other worshipers take the lamb that he had brought and begin to slaughter it and the blood was shed. The priests then would gather the blood as they were drained down into these gold vats that were there and they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it throughout the temple. At the end of that, then he would see his father. At this point, Joseph would take that lamb that he had that was slain and he would drape it over his shoulders and that they would all leave there as they praised God for accepting their sacrifice on behalf of their sin. He would go home that night and on a pomegranate uh, grill, they would have a barbecue and they would barbecue that lamb and they would have a, they would have a huge celebration. And as was the custom of the oldest child at the time, he would ask the question during the the midst of all of this, and, and, and it would be, why is this night different from all other nights? And then Joseph would begin to tell the story of the Passover and God's protection and his provision for the nation of Israel as they were in Egypt. They would tell the story and they would remember what God had done for them, and they would continue to remember that. 
I can't help but equate, as Jesus said, that we are to constantly remember what he had done on our behalf on the cross as we celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper, to remember what God has done. And, and the, the Jews would remember the Passover and what God had done and, and the angel of death passing over their homes, those who would put the blood of the lamb upon their doorpost as God had instructed. And you say, how does that work? I don't understand that. Why would the death angel pass over that house because they put the blood of the lamb above their doorpost? What, what, why? Because that's what God told them to do. And Jesus Christ would later say, just as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man would be lifted up. And as those who looked upon the serpent up on the stick, they would be saved from the consequences of their rebellion and God would heal them. As you and I look up upon the cross of Jesus Christ and do as God says, He says that the, that the death angel will pass over you because the blood of Jesus Christ will set you free from the consequence of sin. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin, the book of Hebrews tells us. And so this was what was going on. And I can imagine as Jesus went to sleep that night, as they went back out into the cities and they ran around for seven full days, the celebration went on. And man, you can imagine what was going through his head. He couldn't get enough. And when his family left the next day at the end of the week that was there, seven days of seeing God's plan unfold before him, he couldn't get enough. And his family left, but he stayed. It's important to recognize and understand that even our Lord could not get enough of the things of God. It's so exciting to see that. He wasn't looking at his watch all through the course of the week saying, man, is this week over yet? Which the watch would have been made by sundown, by the way. But um, the bottom line is, is that, you know, he wasn't doing that. He wanted more of what God had to offer. And that's why we see as they were returning after spending the full number of days, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents were unaware of it. But supposed him to be in the caravan and went a day's journey and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And, and you go, man, how, that, how did that happen? How in the world did that happen? Well, it's important to recognize and understand that people traveled to the feast in caravans, and they weren't Dodge caravans, by the way. They were large groups of people, companies of people, and at 12 years of age, Jesus could go from one group to the next, and he was spending time with his family and his friends, and they had left, and they thought that Jesus was with somebody else. And they got a day out, and they began to look for him for whatever reason, maybe to get together, have a meal together, whatever it was, and they said, where is he? And they couldn't find him. And they started to look around. They were asking their friends and their family, other relatives, where is he? Did you see him? It's like, no, we didn't see him. And now they're starting to get a little bit concerned. And so they head back to Jerusalem. Can you imagine their day out? Now they've got to go day back in. And the whole time they're looking for him. And it took them a whole other day, the third day, to find him. I can imagine as a parent, if you've ever been separated from a child, just for a moment in time, that sick feeling that you get. Now magnify that with this truth, this little reality. They lost God's son. I mean, I'm like, I'm reading this, studying this, going, I, you know, I've thought about times where, I've, you know, you turn around, you look, and your child's gone for a second. It's like, where'd they go? You know, freeze, everybody freeze, locked down. It's like, what's going on here? They lost God's son. Now, I, you know, I don't know what kind of conversation you and your wife would have, but I'm thinking somehow this would end up being my fault. And so, you know, Joseph, Joseph and Mary, they're going back to town, and it's kind of like, I thought you were watching them. I thought you were watching them. Oh, we lost God's son. Who's going to tell him? I'm not telling him. You tell him. 
I'm not telling you tell them. I mean, it's this whole kind of, just it's like, you know, and, and, and sometimes we take the humanity away as we study the word of God as if somehow or another they couldn't relate or we can't. You know what? There are people. There were people like you and me who God had chosen for his purposes and to be a part of his business. And he has chosen you too. If you have trusted in Christ as your Savior, He has chosen you and He's chosen me to carry on the family business. And that's what He gets stuck with when He uses human beings to do His work. Man, I'll tell you what. During those three days, we know if you look at verse 48, check this out. When, when they see Him, they were astonished. His mother said to Him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your, you know, said, behold, take a good look at us. Your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. So somehow he's saying, take a look at us. We're a mess. We are a mess. For three days, we're trying to figure out how to explain to God we lost you. We're a mess. Look at me. And the word greatly distressed, it's, 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 it's so rich in, in, in its wording because it means to be sorrowful, greatly distressed. It's the same word that describes Paul's concern for lost Israel as well as the pain of lost souls in Hades. Any mother and any father can understand if you've ever lost momentarily a child how sickening that feeling is. For three days, they anxiously looked for him. It's not hard to sense the relief when they found him. It was kind of like, whew. Now, we don't know whether Jesus had spent the entire time in the temple. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It certainly would have been a safe place to be. And the Heavenly Father was obviously watching over him. We don't know that when Joseph and Mary found him, we do know that when he, they did find him, he was in the midst of teachers asking them questions and listening to their answers. And the teachers were amazed at both his questions and his answers. But before we examine the discussions in the temple, an important point must be made as it relates to Jesus' decision to stay behind. For those of you who may think, wow, you know what? That was an act of disobedience. Was Jesus a rebellious preteen? And the answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. How do we know that to be true? Because the word of God makes it very clear. Jesus was without sin. He never sinned. As Jesus later asked his detractors, can any of you prove me guilty of sin? He also claimed, I always do what pleases the Father. The body of the New Testament rests on his sinless perfection. The writer of Hebrews describes him as tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Again, The writer tells us, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners. Peter extolled his sinlessness by saying he committed no sin and no deceit was ever found in his mouth. And John categorically said, and in him is no sin. Paul affirmed that Jesus Christ had no sin. To say somehow that Jesus sinned by being a disobedient son contradicts Christ's words And the full body of scripture, Jesus Christ was without sin. The question then is raised, then what in the world's going on? And as we look at this, the explanation for Jesus' behavior, one man suggests this. He says the explanation 
rests, I believe, in the genuineness of his incarnation and his growing awareness of who he was. Accepting the incarnation at face value means that Jesus was genuinely a 12-year-old. Though fully God, he was also fully man. Choosing not to avail himself, as Philippians chapter 2 tells us, of all the prerogatives of deity, he learned in the same way that you and I learn. As a child, he had to learn that 2 plus 2 equals 4. And as a 12-year-old, he was still learning about every part of life, including faith and relationships. As a 12-year-old, he did not have the fine-tuned social awareness he would have at the age of 30. The point is very simple. It is not an easy doctrine to begin to explain how Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. But we must recognize as we see a passage like this that his was definitely the most unique of all human lives. And when he saw them, they were astonished. And he asked the question, why is it that you are looking for me? Did you not know that I would be about my father's business? Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? And so as we look at this, there's three things that stood out in verses 46 through 47. There was an astonishment or amazement of the temple teachers in verse 46 and 47 that he had an understanding. And for those of us who are here that are listening, especially those who are younger, Jesus exhibited a very unique ability. And that was to both listen and ask questions to gain insight. He listened to them. He asked questions of them. He had understanding, which means that they were astonished at the understanding that Jesus had, that he could take together the pieces of Scripture, put them all together, and he understood it. See, Paul told Timothy to rightly divide the word of truth. The word has to do with a pattern, to take pieces of a pattern and put them together so that when you get the totality of it, there is a picture there that makes sense scripturally. What I try to do each week as I teach the word of God is to take pieces of what God has told us in different places, put them all together so that we get a very clear picture of what it is that he's trying to tell us so that there is understanding of scripture. Before I knew Christ, I would try to read the Bible. I had no understanding because the Spirit of God did not live within me. So there was no way that I can understand. I didn't have the mind of God. It was when I first accepted Christ, I began to read the Bible. And I began to read it and went, wow, when they put all this stuff in here? It wasn't in here when I used to read it. Look at this. This is great stuff. And God reveals his truth to us who have come to faith in Christ through the Spirit of God who teaches us and guides us unto all truth. As a gifted teacher or a person who is gifted by God to teach the Word of God, we're able to take those things that God has in pieces, put them together so we can have a clear picture and understand it. And again, any giftedness that we have, all the credit and glory goes to God because He gifts us, each one of us as believers, with a gift that we can use in His servants for the building up of the body of Christ. So no one should take any credit for anything. It all goes back to the Lord. But we need to recognize and understand that there's giftedness there, that we're able to see certain things that may others can't see and no one should feel bad about that that's just the truth and that's a reality that's why we build one another up in the body of Christ we rightly divide the word of truth he took the pieces of scripture and he understood them and he could see the picture that God was painting before him 
They were amazed. If you look at verse 48, his parents were amazed. In verse 47, all who heard him were amazed. And they were astonished. And when they saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, you know, it's like, wow, can you imagine? You walk into the temple and there's your son sitting there with all the learned people of Israel. And he's asking them questions. He's answering their questions. He has an understanding of what's going on. It was like mind-boggling to her. She, I was like, try to take that all in. It's just beyond comprehension. It's a scene that would blow anybody away, yet alone a poor peasant family, uneducated at that, to find themselves in with the leaders of all of Israel talking theology. It's incredible. It's like those of us who have, have children who, you know, they're, they're off the charts when it comes to IQ and things, and you're sitting there talking to them. Sometimes you go, this person's 10 or 11 or 12, and it's like they're like 30. It's amazing. It's exciting, it's scary, but it's still the way that it is. And the answer of Jesus is the key to understanding the passage. And notice what he says. Did you not know I must be about my father's business? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? It is a word that Jesus used often. He says, I must preach the gospel. The son of man must suffer and die. The son of man must be lifted up. Even at the age of 12, Jesus was moved by divine compulsion to do the Father's will. I must do the will of him who sent me. It's not an option. And you know what, folks? It's not an option for us either. If we want to live a life of obedience, we must do what God has commissioned us, called us, instructed us, gifted us to do. It's not an option. I must work the works of him who sent me, John 9, 4. There's a wealth of truth in the answer. Jesus did not rebuke Mary, but simply asked a very gentle question. In fact, it could go something like, don't you know why I'm here? It's almost like if anybody should know who I am, it's you. Don't you know what I've come to do? Jesus called the temple where he stood his father's house. And as we put all this together, it's really important that we listen very carefully to this because he asserted that God was his father and he had a unique relationship to God that no other human being ever had. That relationship to God, no one ever had before him. There's no parallel in the Old Testament for the phrase, my father, in speaking of God. Rather, some other equivalent was used. At 12 years of age... At 13, he would become a son of the commandment, and Jesus had come to understand that he had a unique relationship with God the Father, one far deeper and more profound than anybody else had ever known. Namely, now he knew that he was the Son of God, the Messiah. God became man. Eighteen years later, when Jesus began his public ministry, his awareness of God as his Father would become a trademark to his ministry. For he would often say, as he did in the Gospel of John, If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. The Jews, when he heard him identify himself as the Son of God, that God was his Father, they picked up stones to kill him because he equated himself to be equal to God. They understood that no one in human history had ever said that God was their Father. Abraham was called the father of God, but Abraham never called God his father. There are only 14 times in the Old Testament where that phrase is even used, speaking of God as father. Jesus Christ over 60 times 
use the phrase that I must do the work of my Father. I must do that which He has sent me to do. That if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father am one. And it was a unique calling card of Jesus as Messiah, as the Son of God, as the Son of Man, who said that God is my Father, for I am the Son of Man, who has come to save His people from their sin. It's important to recognize that Jesus Christ understood It was a watershed experience for him at the age of 12, and the awareness of a divine paternity was explicit. In the very first recording, if you think about this, these are the first recorded words of Jesus Christ in Scripture. In closing, as we move forward, it's interesting that Joseph and Mary did not understand what was being said, but they treasured and pondered all those things in their heart. You know what? And that's what we need to do. There are times in life we're not going to understand what God's telling us. And you know what? We just need to ponder and treasure those things in our heart until God more clearly reveals what it is he wants to do in our life. And they did that on a regular basis. And as we look at that, we'll close with these thoughts. Being committed to the Father's business was also reflected in his personal dedication in verses 51 and 52. And he went down with them, speaking of Jesus, and came to Nazareth. And he continued in subjection to them. He continued in subjection to them. Four things stand out as we close, as we consider what God tells us of the next 18 years of Jesus' life. Number one, he had an attitude of submission. Stop and think about that. The Lord Jesus Christ obeyed his parents. They took the lead. Joseph and Mary took the lead. They trained him, they taught him, they loved him, they nurtured him, and he continued as he had always done and continually did to be in subjection to them. And I can't help but share this, and I, and I, and I pray that you take it in the spirit in which I mean it. And that is this, I want to encourage you to take the lead as parents in your home. It always concerns me to hear things like, Well, my kids don't like to go to church. Or they don't like to come with us. Or they like to go somewhere with their friends. And I hear things like that, and it always troubles me because I ask the question, who's the child and who are the parents? It's always a funny thing to see the tail wagging a dog. And it troubles me because I'm willing to guess and bet that your children probably don't like curfews or chores or going to school at times, or to some practice of some sort, or eating certain foods, or going to bed at set times, or doing their homework. That's just my guess, having had three children that grew up in our home. um, There was a tendency not to want to do some of those things. And it really didn't make any difference. Because it's not a democracy. (laughs) We're not elected. Doesn't matter. Cast another ballot. Oh, still comes out the same. <laughs> Try it again. So, so the point that I want to make is very simple. Why not take the lead in the most important area of your child's life? And that is their spiritual development. See, you know, we are committed as a church to teach, to train, to encourage, to exhort, and to provide godly fellowship for your children. And I would just ask that you take the lead and responsibility that has been given to you by God and encourage them to participate. 
If there are things that we need to do to address needs, then please share those with us because we're committed to do it. But at the end of the day, you know what? They'll thank you for it. Because when I hear that kids are going somewhere else or doing somewhere something else, you know, I ask the question, what's going on? Are they there just to hang out with their friends and it becomes social time? Well, you know what? The reason that we come and gather together as a church body is so that we can focus and center on Jesus Christ and Him crucified and the principles that we need to learn from the Word of God. We all have plenty of places to go to hang out with our friends and do the things that we want to do. But you know what? Can we be disciplined for maybe an hour or two or three a week in the things of God? I just encourage you as parents to assume the responsibility that God has given you and me to make sure that we take the lead. And you know what? And they may hate it, but later in life, many of you are sitting here today who have told me you hated when your parents made you go to church or to a youth group or to a camp or whatever it was. You hated it. You went and you learned and you thank them to this day. That moment in time, you couldn't stand them. And you know what? And we have to be adult enough, mature enough to recognize and understand that, you know what? This isn't a popularity contest. I got to be accountable on YouTube before God for how we train up our children and the way they should go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. I've talked to many of you who sat in services and your dad or mom or whatever tweaked you in the ear. Hey, pay attention. Grabbed you by the shoulder. You know, you're doodling or whatever. It's like, listen up. You know what? You know, you know and, 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 you know, we talk about sowing seed. You know, throw a little seed out, do a little this. You never know how it's going to germinate. Well, I'm committed to take a 50-pound sack and hit you upside the head. I just don't want, you know, the birds come and pluck that little seed away, man. If I do the 50-pound sack thing, you know, a little bit more emphasis to it. And, and, and the reason that I can share that is because the Word of God is so clear that Jesus continued in subjection to them. The God of the universe subjected Himself to human parents. And He left an example for us to follow. Because all authority is established by God. And none of us have it if He hadn't already given it to us. Number two is we see the ability that of Jesus to grow spiritually as well as physically. And he continued in subjection. And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature. He grew in God's wisdom, which means that he studied the word of God. He applied the things of God. You and I are to study the word of God, apply the things of God. He grew in stature. He grew physically and in favor with God and men. There's an approval before God, which is a priority. And in the favor with God, Charisse or grace, his acceptance by others was a witness and testimony to others, find favor with men. And in closing and putting all this together, from Jesus we learn what it takes to be committed to our Father's business. Never forget that ours is a family business, one in which each of us plays an important role. And the question is, are you doing your part? The boy Jesus grew up in a large family. In a despised city, nurtured by parents who were probably poor. The Jewish religion was at an all-time low. The Roman government was in control. And society was in a state of fear and change. Yet when Jesus emerged, emerged from Nazareth, 18 years later, the father was able to say of him, Thou art my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Can God say that of you? There's my son, there's my daughter, in he, in her, I am well pleased. Why? 
because you're committed to carrying on the family business of reaching the world with the word of God by the testimony of our mouth and by the evidence of our life that we have come to faith in Christ. Father, thank you for your word and for this time to be able to set aside and study it. God, I pray that each one of us would be about your business as the Lord Jesus was the ultimate example. God, help us to be committed to you in all our ways, constantly acknowledging you and not leaning on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you because you will set our path straight. God, as parents or grandparents, great-grandparents, we pray that we continue to train up our children, a godly generation, that we can pass the baton of this business onto, that they will carry on your name, and not only the proclamation with lips, but more importantly, even at times, how we conduct ourselves with our lives. God, we thank you for this. We should recognize and understand that your business is the business of redeeming men to yourself, that you are in the business of salvation that you are in the business of buying back those of us who are lost because of the sin of Adam so that we can once again have fellowship with our Creator. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the price that Jesus paid on the cross and the power of His resurrection. I thank you that you've revealed to many of us today who He is so that we can trust Him as our Savior. I pray now for those who don't know Him or cannot identify Him that you would take the scales off of their eyes and that you would open their ears so that they would hear the word of God. And faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God so that their eyes would be open to your son and him crucified and resurrected as the only answer to sin that you give. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We praise you. We look forward to a great day at the park where we could have fellowship with one another. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.